Nightcast on this Sunday afternoon or evening, if you're currently in Vietnam, as our guest is. Um, it's just it's just myself t- today um, because we're doing an er- we're doing an earlier version, um, and uh, with me is good friend and uh, an author, uh, Chris Roper. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much for having me on, Matt. No Pleasure problem at all. Pleasure to be here. Well, so a long time ago. In a in an insurance company far far away, two men met, and who no didn't meet talked over the internet, and that's how this is how this began basically, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, I can't even remember how we actually. I think there was a forum or something. Uh, there was a forum at the insurance company we worked at. And I think we we got in touch through that. I can tell you exactly how we how we how we started talking first, Mister Roper. Because ah, it has has had a it. it has had a an indelible uh sort of effect on on my life I think. Um, oh really? Yeah, yeah. And I I've, I tell everybody this whenever sort of <laughs> uh I I talk to them about it. But so it w- this would have been now Geek Pride's been going. We are on nine years, ten nine years possibly eight or nine years something like that so in and around that ballpark and uh, i had just started doing it and i think one of my first articles was a was a history article i i I wanted to do and uh it was like um one about sort of you know what you didn't know about history it's not the truth it's what you believe sort of thing and i did this article and i posted it on the website uh what was a really dodgy version of the website back in the day and um i posted the link on the forum and i had a load of people who were just sort of because because i'm badly dyslexic i am really badly dyslexic and stuff but you were the only person now you sent me an email in work and you sent me an email with the article and you had annotated every bit that was wrong and you weren't being condescending and you weren't being you know you were literally going this is how you should do this and this is how you should do this and you you made it very easy for me to understand where i was going wrong and because of that and then i talked to you about it um and you, I, I said I was dyslexic and I had problems. And I remember you said, well, when you're having conversations with people, you should, even in text message, you should always punctuate. You should always do this just so you learn, just so you always get it into your sort of, into your rhythm. And I've, it's always sort of kind of stayed in my head. So when I do messages and I, sometimes I will just type randomly, but I always try my best to make sure that I'm thinking about the punctuation. I'm thinking about certain things because of the advice that you gave me many years ago. And I think, and I, no, yeah. I don't think I know. I think uh, my writing style, as much as it's not perfect, it is a million, a million times better than it was because of you, sir. Oh, wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's amazing. I, actually, as you started talking about that, uh, the memories uh, came flooding back. I do vaguely remember a, a history article that you'd written because um, I I've been writing. You know, since I was nine, it's always been a passion of mine. And so, whenever I, you know, I see another person who's into it as well, um, I, I can't. I don't know. I, I feel like a kind of um, a kind of sympathetic uh, person and want to reach out and have a chat and maybe talk about the writing. Um, so yeah, that that gosh, wow. And then I think I started. I wrote a few articles. Yeah, you did some stuff on science. You did some science stuff for us on Geek Pride back in the day. Um, Yeah, you you bobbed in and out. Um, 
but yeah, that you know that that moment, um, you know, I I would say changed my life because it was until that point. So up, I knew I I only found out I was sort of dyslexic, um, you know, when I was in university. Before then, I just thought I was a bit a bit thick, and you know, knowing I had something, you know, that maybe was a reason why I couldn't compute things sort of you know properly, sort of helped me, but. Nobody could really teach me how to do English properly. And I love to read and I like to write. I just, you know, I, I couldn't do it properly. And the way that you sort of articulated that to me, the way that you sort of kind of showed me how to do it. And you you even gave me a book. And I, I don't know if I still got it. If I haven't got it here. Um, Grammar Rules, I think it's called. Um, and... It was basically a book that you told me to get, and I bought it. And um, and whenever I'm sort of passing on my your knowledge, effectively, I I said to them to get that book. So um, wow. I uh, there's a guy in on a website, Josh, and you know he has a few the same sort of issues, I think, and stuff. You know, he's very passionate, he really into it, but sometimes his writing can be a bit sort of to and fro. So when I sort of explained to him, I'm trying to do it in the way that you you would have done it. And I told him to get that book. So, uh, yeah, wow. there you go. That's amazing. Passed that's, it on. That's fantastic. I can't believe that. Thank you. Yeah. I didn't no. realize I had such a, uh, an impact. No, yes. At the time. Yeah, man. And it was, it's, it's... sorry, parry. Sorry, parry. go on. No, it was, it, it was literally, it was just the way you did it. It wasn't like a lot of people just go, that's a shit article or you, you can't spell or, you know, don't say anything. Whereas you sort of, it was the fact that you took time and you made it so you were like, I'm not being an asshole. I'm just saying this is what you should do. And, you know, it, it helped greatly. It really did. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you, you say that because oftentimes that's when, you know, when you have that moment when someone kind of points out things in a kind of constructive way that can make a, a massive impact on, on you personally. And um, it just reminds me of um, I, I joined a writing group when I was living in Brighton. It's my first writing group I'd ever joined. And um, up until that point, I'd been doing a lot of writing, writing lots of different stories. I started a couple of novels that never really went anywhere. Um, but I joined the writing group, so I really wanted to get better. Uh, I think what happened is I'd, I gave a story to a friend, and they sort of said, well, you know, this kind of works, but kind of doesn't. And, you know, there's this X, Y, Z is wrong. I think I'll let somebody who is uh, also uh, my ex-girlfriend's father, he was a journalist for... I think it was the observer, and uh, I think he read it as well and pointed some things out. Anyway, I, I joined this writing group, and uh, they were kind of, they were all published, and they were all a, a little bit eccentric. And here was me, this, you know, wannabe writer who wrote genre fiction. You know, I wasn't doing anything even remotely literary. And uh, the first meeting was absolutely terrifying. Um, so the way it works is you would submit something in advance, and then... Uh, everybody around sitting around would then give you their feedback and you weren't allowed to talk until everybody in the group had given their feedback. And they basically took something, it was like chapter one of a novel I'd been working on, set in Brighton. And uh, they tore it to shreds. I mean, in a, in a constructive way, but it was like they, they, their knowledge was just far superior. Their craft was just far superior uh, to mine. Um, and I remember leaving that meeting thinking, wow, now I know I really want to be a writer because had I not been that passionate about it, 
there's no I would have left that meeting not in tears but like never wanting to write again or, or at least not show it to anybody um, so that was a kind of turning point for me because not only did I learn a hell of a lot but just that experience of um, kind of realizing that you still have a long way to go but you now are equipped with the kind of some of the knowledge to help you get there and it made me realize that actually you know I'm gonna to have to expect criticism all throughout my career and now I, I actually as well as writing fiction in my spare time I'm a full-time copywriter um, so I write for my my career and I'm also writing fiction as well in my spare time but that moment for me was like I realized then that this is you know I could have a shot at this because if I can survive this and take a positive from it then you know what what else could I survive you know how I, I'm just going to keep going I'm going to keep going and what that's was, what I think that's what was it you passion, did you know. what was it you did in in Aviva at the time I was an underwriter ah, commercial right. it was like treats of vehicles and stuff but you see you you, uh, you left it I'm still living the dream Not, albeit I work for associators really? but I still sort of yeah I'm still technically in insurance <laughs> Oh really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm, I do the tech side of things. For I went from fraud investigation to sort of helping do fraud tech stuff, um, which is I'm currently doing now. So, but it's still, you know, it's still insurance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think every I was always a little bit ashamed to talk about what I did for a living when I was working at Aviva, um, and I think it was just because the word insurance has a kind of like a lot of negativity around it um for some people anyway it's also not renowned for being an interesting uh, an interesting industry to work in but that said I, I you know i work with some amazing people i got to meet you um and also the, the work itself was, was interesting at times you know i did underwriting that's like you know risk assessment and that's the skills that i i learned there i've, I've applied to other things in my life so um I, I don't look back at Aviva and think, oh, God, what, what a wasted decade of my life. Because it was one of those jobs you could come in, you know, do your eight hours and then leave, and you didn't have to think too much about it. You didn't expect it to work over the weekend. Um, so it allowed me to pursue the writing in, in my spare time. Um, so there, was, there are positives to it, yeah. for sure. I, yeah, I loved Aviva. It was just because, well, we're, especially where we were. So we were in the center of Manchester, um, it was a bit of a sort of not a lads club because there was a lot of sort of we had a lot of girlfriends you know within it so we had a big group who would literally we'd go out drinking after work you know we were always sort of kind of doing stuff together our boss a guy called uh, Gordon Rogan was awesome you know my boss Gordon Slater and stuff we had loads of you know good good people and stuff so as a company you know I think it was one of the best jobs I had now my job at the minute's awesome as well I went from having to do fee earning which I hated to not having to do fee earning and do something that I'm interested in so I get to do spreadsheets and and, and techie stuff which I I am quite interested in I get to nerd out quite a bit and my boss is really cool with that and he gives me what what I like especially for my brain is being given time to do things. So you're, you're set sort of like targets or you, you should do things and you're given your own sort of, you're given enough rope to sort of kind of do your own thing. And if you hang yourself with it, 
that's what you do. It's your, it's your own fault. There's, you're basically treated like an adult, and I like that. You know, I don't like being yeah. forced into stuff. And I've had jobs where they're on on you all the time to to do things, and I hate that. You know, it, it's if there's one way to stop me from doing something is to get on my back all the time about it because it's just yeah, it's not the way I yeah, work. I, I I completely agree with you. And actually, I went into Aviva after you. I think it, yeah, immediately after university. I was on a really low salary. I was like a junior underwriter. Um, but my past experience with work had always been disappointing. You know, I think I did every kind of crappy job you can imagine. I, I went to McDonald's for a while. I did telesales. Um, I think my low, low point was probably doing um, charity fundraising over the phone. I don't know if you've oh, ever God. had that kind of job, but no. <laughs> so destroying, so destroying. Um, but it got me through university, you know, I was kind of financing myself through university. I went to the University of Sussex, studied philosophy, forgotten everything about it now. And I actually, whenever I tell people I've studied philosophy at university, I'm, I'm a little bit apprehensive that they're going to start asking me some seriously deep and profound questions that I'm completely unprepared to answer. Um, that said, it was, it was kind of a weird degree as well, because um, the, the first year was I was only 17 when I, when, when I went to university and I think I found it really overwhelming just that experience of being around uh, you know, lots of really smart people and you know, I was from Scotland. Um, so it was, it was kind of overwhelming. And then the second year I started getting into my stride and then the third year I absolutely, absolutely loved. Um, but yeah, and that's why I stayed, that's why I stayed in, in Brighton. And I left the University of Sussex, got my job at Aviva, and stayed there for almost a decade, actually. Wow. See, that's where, I, with your accent, I wasn't expecting Scottish. I was expecting sort of Southern English and stuff. That's probably where it was. Yeah. I was like, you know, I was like, yeah, my accent now, my accent now, I'm, you know, it's, if you recognize that it was Scottish, that's a good thing because most people think I'm American. Or you something. do have a bit of a, I think a, it's a twang. Yeah. I think it's just, because I've lived, I haven't lived in Scotland since I was 16. So I remember one of the, the things that, this has really stuck with me. Uh, when I worked at McDonald's, it was probably my first year at university. And uh, I'll never forget, I'd only been in down south for maybe a year. And I used to say, like, the word cool. I used to say kill, kill, like that. You know, that's just the way we were saying it up in Scotland. And uh, I remember this guy just, who was someone else I worked with at McDonald's he said to me it's not kill it's cool like this and I was like oh okay so then like I tried to kind of adapt my accent a little bit to try and sound a little less like a you know get someone from Scotland a bit more like someone from the south of England which is what you do when you're sort of 17 years old and you want to fit in um, but yeah since then I mean my accent has it used to be really strong but people can usually pick up a little bit Scottish or they say I think I'm American or Canadian or something but um yeah I get American I get American sometimes though I've been told my accent hasn't sort of dipped too badly it's it gets stronger when I talk to people from Northern Ireland but a lot of my mates from Northern Ireland moved over to Manchester with me so we kind of got that we sort of kept that sort of Irish thing going on yeah 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 yeah, I mean, I, I also, because I taught English out here in Vietnam, when I first came over here, I uh, wasn't a copywriter at the time. I'd give, that's what happened, I left the Viva and then I, I moved to Vietnam because I wanted to do something completely different. 
And uh, I also wanted a job which would allow me to travel and invest a bit more time in, in the writing as well. And uh, that's how I ended up in Vietnam. And I think sort of a couple of years teaching and really watching how you say things, enunciating correctly and everything, uh, that probably had an impact on my accent too. Um, I've got yeah. a friend who um, he's from you know deepest darkest sort of West Belfast, and um, he um, he moved to Korea. Though no, he moved to Manchester with us for a bit, and then he moved to South Korea to teach English, and he's still there now. Um, I think he's like the head of his head of his department or something. So he you know he loves it over there. But every time he comes back and you you, you talk to him. He thinks he's just speaking the way he speaks, but he has this sort of like every syllable is enunciated, and it's just like, <laughs> "How are you doing, Miney?" And he's got this sort of weird Irish sort of twang, but it's like, "Hello, Matthew, how are you doing?" And it's like every sort of syllable comes out, and it's just like, "Why are you talking weird?" He's like, "I'm not talking weird." It's like, "You are. You're talking weird." And he's just like, "But it's just because obviously because he's." he's teaching English, you know, and I, I understand yeah. because if I'm on the phone to people, I get called Martin. I say, I know, I don't know why Matthew sounds like Martin, but it's just like, you know, hello, Martin. And I, I have to pronounce it like eight because people, when I go it, like in Northern Ireland, they go, what? And you're like, okay, sorry, eight <laughs> or, or water <laughs> and things, you know, yeah. you find yourself having to sort of change your accent because people are just like, I don't understand. Speak English. It's like, I am. I am. Yeah. yeah, I'm very much like you. As soon as I go back to Scotland or, you know, if I'm around some of my Scottish friends, then the accent comes back. Also, if I'm I'm drunk as well, <laughs> uh, which is kind of, which is weird, you know, that that's, it, I could be around the most, you know, I, I could be around a bunch of, of Vietnamese people and, you know, even if I've been drinking, I, I'm going to start sounding more and more Scottish. I can sense it myself, you know, it's just weird. Like my inner Scotsman's trying to get out, you know? How is you, do you speak Vietnamese? Uh, Motuk, Yeah, a little. Ah, uh, cool. cool. I mean, a little. Yeah, I can speak a little. My wife is Vietnamese, so um, not that she she speaks like really good English. So we very rarely speak in Vietnamese. Um, but she studied in the UK, so uh, she's she's really fluent. We've we've never really had much of a need, except um, her her mother. She doesn't speak any English at all. So I try to have very basic conversations, you know, she'll ask me like, have you eaten? And I'll say, yes, you know, because everything here, like the, the language and everything, it's all around kind of social events and yeah. gatherings and stuff. So normally you don't go and you, nobody says, hey, how are you? Um, they say, have you eaten? They say, I'm gum chua, which is, have you eaten rice yet? <laughs> and uh, that's kind of the, the way they, they greet. Um, so I'll, I'll have basic conversations in Vietnamese with them. Um, my wife's mother, but aside from that, it's pretty. I mean, I live in Ho Chi Minh City, born in oh, Saigon, cool. so there's a lot of uh, lots of people speak English here. Um, so I, I only really use it when I'm, you know, directing taxi drivers or at a local restaurant. But not anymore because we're currently sort of under lockdown. But back in the day, uh, pre pre pandemic days, but uh, yeah, so I, I can speak a bit. Not much. Yeah. My girlfriend's Polish and I'd like to say I, I can speak a word or two and that's it. it it's a it's a stupidly hard language. <laughs> so you know, she's jabbering away in Polish and I'm just like mm -hmm. <laughs> 
and the only thing I can sort of kind of pick up is if she's angry, she'll say "korva," which is a swear word in Polish, and and that's it. So, oh, really? ah, you swore <laughs> in Polish. She's she's pissed off. So uh, that's, that's that's funny, that isn't it? That the because my wife she's the same. She she taught me the the swear words, but she hasn't taught me anything else. <laughs> that's it. It's always the um, swear words first. Always is, yeah. Yeah, yeah Vietnamese is really difficult to, to to learn as well because it's a tonal language. Um, and the variations between regions are so vast that sometimes, you know, Vietnamese don't understand other Vietnamese from different parts of the country, which is kind of the same in the UK, I guess. You know, if you've got someone speaking a, a Scottish brogue, trying to speak to someone from the South, it might be quite difficult to understand everything, but um, it's a little bit more pronounced here so that even different cities are, you know, the, the differences can be quite big, even if, you know, the, the town or the, the village or whatever is just, a hundred miles away, say. Um, so it's very difficult to learn, and they speak a, a certain type of Vietnamese up in the north, and then an, another type in the south. So most, when I was trying to learn initially, I was learning the northern, uh, the northern dialect, and I would practice with Nga, uh, my wife, and uh, she'd be like, well, "What are you saying?" I say, "Well, I'm saying this because it means this." So, Oh, we don't we don't say it like that. Like, oh. <laughs> Great. I, I might just stop learning the northern dialect then and just try and pick up some southern words. But it's not as common. You don't find as as many uh, learning resources on the southern dialect. I don't know why. You know. I just can't get my I can't get my sort of my head around some of the pronunciations. Like she'll say something, and I'll try and copy her. And I I in my mind I'm like I'm saying exactly the way you're saying it. And she's like no. No, you're not. And it's like, and, and I'm sitting there trying to repeat herself, and she's just looking at me like, "What are you? What are you saying?" And it's just like, "I'm saying exactly the way you are. And you're not." And it's like there's a subtle sort of like way they either rule their tongue or they some of the sort of words, sort of letters, sort of work together. And I'm just like, "Yeah, like chesh." Or it's, well, it's not chesh, but I say chesh is it's meant to be like hello. But I, you know, and she said chish, and I'm like. Chesh, I said that, and she's like, "No, it's not. It's not that." And I'm just like, "All right, I'm giving up. I'm not. I'm not speaking Polish." <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the same with me. And I think, um, like, yeah, she gets frustrated sometimes because for her, it's just so much easier to speak English. So if I'm kind of trying to get my point across in broken Vietnamese, she'll just <laughs> immediately switch to, to English. <laughs> um, so it's not exactly helpful, but there you go. Right, okay. We've had our catch-up. What you're here for is you're, you're writing. So you've got, you you wrote a book, um, which and I, I apologise profusely, I've forgotten the name of. Um, one minute, I've got it on my phone here, actually. I've still got it on my phone. Yeah, uh, that was so... Vestige, a, Vestige, that was it. Vestige, yeah, or Vestige, yeah. That's right. So that was, um, some, that was kind of a, it was, a 100% earnest attempt to write uh, a really good story. Um, it was just a novella. I think it was about 55,000 words. And I had this idea for it. I sat down and wrote. I got into the habit of writing, which is really important, um, that you sort of get into a habit and do it every day. And I was doing that. So every day I would come home from work, I would uh, have my dinner, and then I would go straight to the computer and, and, and write. And... Um, it was also, at the same time, a bit of an experiment. So I wrote this, bef uh, yeah, just before I joined this, this writing group. Um, 
And I wanted to see, you know, well, could I do it? Could I write something of novella length? Um, would people enjoy it? Could I publish it, like self-publish it on Amazon? Because back then that was pretty early days, I think, for the, the self-publishing industry. So I wanted to do it and, you know, I made the cover and everything myself. And uh, I sent it, I, I published it, I shared it with all friends and, and family and everything and people bought it and, you know, got some good reviews, got some bad reviews. And then I think it was maybe a year and a half to two years later, I sort of looked back at it and you do get a lot of perspective on your writing when you leave it for a while. And when I came back to it, I was like, oh, okay. I could see like, I could see the passion, you know, there was a lot of adjectives, a lot of uh, description, you know, and, and then I was thinking about the plot and the characters. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is a bit hackneyed and the characters weren't really fleshed out. And I think someone, one of the reviewers called it like a big dumb object story, which is kind of what it was, like the whole, the plot device is a sci-fi novella based on this kind of cube thing, um, which is from like a, another dimension. I can't even remember myself. Uh, but it was just, I, I, when I look back, two years later, when I took another look at it, I was just like, okay, this I, I can do so much better than this. And I unpublished it. And then all the years since then, I've been dedicated to improving the, the quality of, of the writing, uh, not just like writing, um, like the technical craft of writing, you know, flow and cadence, rhythm and everything, but also trying to focus on sort of simpler plot um, characterization, you know, making sure stories have a beginning, middle, and end. And um, yeah, so over the years, I was focusing on those things to try and become a better writer so that if I was going to self publish again, then um, I could be proud of what I produced. And um, yeah, I, I think you, you wrote a, a review quite a I quite enjoyed I quite, I quite enjoyed it, man. Um, I remember reading yeah. it when I was in Egypt at the time. Um, I was, and that would have been 2012, 2012-ish, something like something that. Yeah, lot. that's right. Yeah, it was 20, 2012 is when I published it. I think. Yeah, about 2012. Um, yeah, and I, I enjoyed it. I like, I, I, you know, I remember sort of the end of it, um, you know, uh you know, spoilers if any. You know, I, I guess if if anybody gets to read it, you can't, you can't get it now anyway. Yeah. So it's like you know, uh, from what I remember, and obviously this is what like nine nine years ago now. So, um, it's like there's one. It's something with one of the one of the guys in the ship. Um, it is he sort of in the cube and it's sort of like heading towards Earth or a planet yeah. and something, and then sort of kind of burns up in the um in the sort of yeah. atmosphere. That's right. Yeah. 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 So that, you know, that always stuck with me because I thought, you know, it was quite a good sort of end. And, you know, in my mind, you know, I was just sort of at the time when I first watched it's like, oh man, one thing I hate is doing reviews for books. And it's because I like to read books in my own time. And, um, and so when I feel like I'm being forced to read them, uh, the review stuff, I don't feel like I'm giving it a good shot. But once I got into it, um, I was like, I just sat there for like literally, you know, every night for like two or th- two or three nights when I was there, and you know, I was quite engaged by it. So I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed writing it. And I think that was one of my first mistakes was thinking that just because you spent, you know, a year to eighteen months working on something that 
it deserves to be published. Um, I think a lot of writers make that mistake in the beginning, especially now Amazon's made it so easy to, to publish. Um, so you've got people now, um, I mean, the, the, the market is just flooded with kind of low quality writing and um, yeah, people are publishing short stories, like one short story of, you know, maybe like 5,000 words and charging like three pounds for it or whatever. Um, and interestingly, though, this is what I kind of love about self-publishing. This is why I've, I've opted for that route rather than trying to get published through a, a, a sort of mainstream publisher. And that is that you can build a solid readership no matter what you're writing about. Um, and I think that's kind of cool because it almost democratizes writing um, or publishing to an extent. You know, a lot of publishers can be like gatekeepers in a sense. Um, you know, if something is out of fashion, they won't publish it. And uh, it's nice that there is a platform where anybody, you know, if you're writing romance werewolf novels or whatever, you, know, you can actually build up a very, uh, very loyal readership and also make a living out of it. So rather, because the alternative is, you know, you have a manuscript, you send it to like a bunch of agents and they may take like three or four months to get back to you, or you send it direct to publishers themselves. And then you're, a lot of publishers will only accept, um, they won't allow you to send your manuscript to multiple publishers. It's called simultaneous submission or sorry, no, multiple submission. Um, so that leaves you in a position where you have to wait for one publisher to get back to you before you can send it to another one if that one isn't interested. And normally it can take some of these publishers, they won't get back to you for like six months. Um, I remember uh, I submitted a short story to a publisher that got back to me 18 months later. So you think like you could grow quite quickly waiting for publishers to get back to you. Mm. Um, so that's, that's another reason why I think the the ebook self-publishing as an ebook is a is a good idea if you know you want to just thrill people with with stories and and give them something to enjoy and you don't have to charge like a lot of money for it and um, if you build up that readership it doesn't even have to be that big you know if you have ten thousand regular readers of your stuff then you know you can give up your main job and you can just do that full time and I'm sure that would make a lot of a lot of writers including myself very happy <laughs> and this is how this is the sort of line you've gone for this new book you've gone self-published on amazon correct yeah the interesting thing is the three of the stories in this uh collection have been published the, the traditional way but uh they have since changed and been improved on and adapted um so they're i think personally they're they're even better than they were before uh so there's five stories in total and um they're all kind of different um horror i guess you'd call it horror there's you know it's a lot of gruesome um dismemberments and things in there but i do try and make the stories kind of psychological as well so they're, they're it's kind of like creeping dread instead of like you know blood and guts every every page because um, i think that kind of lingering sense of um fear you know, that kind of horror, that creeping horror is what I love personally. You know, stuff like, um, I was thinking of the movie Hereditary or any any of Ari Aster's work, actually, the Midsummer. Um, I, I love these movies because I think he he's found a way, a new way of scaring people that doesn't rely on jump scares. 
Um, and I think a book should be able to do that as well, rather than just being blood and guts and, you know, ghostly apparitions in the hall. It should also be something that really gets under your skin. Um, so that's what I try to do with these stories. Um, that's why I quite like the Blair Witch Project, because it was, at the time, it, there was no monster, there was no ghost. It was just everything was in your own mind, and you were basically scaring yeah. yourself. Um, Absolutely. And that, that for me, it's a very. Sorry, I was just going to say that what what you said is it hits the nail on the head for me personally because one of my one of the first horror authors that I got into was M. R. James. You know, he wrote those. Um, he's wrote, written a bunch of sh- horror short stories, or ghost stories, um, and there's one in particular called "Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad," um, and it absolutely terrified me. And what he does is, in his stories, you never really see what the monster or the ghost or whatever, you, you never really see it in its fullest. Um, and I, I remember reading him talking about writing and saying that once you show whatever the, the beast, the, the baddie is or the, the monster or whatever, as soon as you show it in its physical form, it, it loses all its, its power. All its potency is just gone. Um, and I think that... Sometimes it's fun, you know, to get those, to see something like that on screen, um, you know, especially if it's something really imaginative. But I think horror, when you want to really creep people out and scare them, then it's everything around that is what's scary, not this, you know, horrible, disgusting looking thing. Um, So, yeah, the Blair Witch, like you say, is, is exactly that. You don't see the witch at all, but it's just everything around the story the environmental storytelling in that movie is, is incredible as well you know you just everybody's scared of the woods um you take someone out into the woods we just have this natural innate fear of the woods and we hate the dark as well we've got a natural innate fear of the dark and what what we can't see what we don't know um and i think movies like Blair Witch and that whole documentary style like while it was still new it's incredibly effective and mm, yeah. um, i you know, paranormal activity, they did it pretty well. Oh, man. When, like, I, you know, I'm not as affected by horror movies as I used to be and stuff, Uh, sort of, you know, when I, when I had sort of any sort of kind of belief um i i was probably a bit more and now being a sort of pretty strange atheist my 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 viewing of horror movies has changed somewhat i don't sort of have as much effect on me but paranormal activity scared the shit out of me when she gets dragged out of bed when she literally gets yeah. dragged out of bed and trailed down the hall i was like i'm out i'm out i'm done yeah <laughs> yeah that that was absolutely ter- terrifying i remember there's a scene as well in the movie the conjuring where um, two children are like sitting up in bed. One of them is like staring into the corner of the room and it's, she looks absolutely terrified. Like she's, you know, the tears are coming, her face is like all distorted. She's like this and, and, and the girl next to her, is her sister, is like, you know, what's wrong, what's wrong? She's saying, it's looking at us, it's looking at us. She's like looking into this and then the, the, the scene changes and it's just this kind of slow focus in on this dark space. and. I, it's absolutely like I remember watching that and kind of moving backwards as that <laughs> was like going in. I was like moving back. It's like I don't want to see it. But your your mind creates all sorts of stuff. And I love it when directors and authors they can really harness that in scaring you. And uh 
yeah, that in paranormal activity as well, what really scared me was like the, the footprint. You know, they, they put the, what was it, the talcum powder or something, or the baking soda on the floor and the flour on the floor, and then there was yeah, the yeah. footprint in it the next day. I mean, all that, all that stuff is just incredible, and that's what I love about good horror. The, the, the other thing is, so I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a horror fan, but I enjoy watching uh, a good horror movie. But my, um, <laughs> it, it's been tarnished somewhat because my my girlfriend is will refuse, literally refuses to uh, watch horror. Um, she is, you know, scared of. Everything. I, I we tried to watch it. I think on um, Halloween, oh, right. and she was screaming her head off. Uh, we tried to watch Aliens and stuff. She's screaming her head off, like literally curdling screams. And because her, she is so. Um, because she's so petrified of anything ever so slightly scary. Like we were watching Modern Family once and there was a Halloween version and she jumped at that. And like because it's so hilarious, it takes the edge off yeah. everything you watch with her because it, it doesn't matter how scary it is. She is so petrified of it and it just sort of makes it slightly funny. And then it's just like, so you can't really watch horror movies with her because she... Yeah, she she she's a bit of a wuss when it comes to horror films. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> my wish is exactly the same. I, I actually took her to see Hereditary and uh, didn't tell her much about it because I knew if, if if she knew she wouldn't want to go. Um, she's more like she doesn't get frightened of jump jump scares or anything like that. She's more like me and has an, a very active imagination and stuff lingers. Um, so there was a couple of scenes in that movie where, you know, she was, they stuck with her and, and she didn't want to talk about the movie even afterwards, uh, which I love to do and, you know, start analyzing the scenes and everything. And she was just like, no, 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 no. I don't want to talk about it. I just want to forget about it, like, you know, forever. Um, and she's been like that with a few movies because um, I'm one of those people that if I find out someone hasn't seen something like Aliens or Alien or uh, hasn't seen Poltergeist, I have to get them to watch it because these are my my favorite movies, and you know there's a lot of nostalgia to it as well. And I love the opportunity to sit down with somebody who hasn't watched a film that means a lot to you, and, and it's like you're you're almost experiencing it for the first time again. Um, so yeah, I do sort of torture her a little bit with the, the horror movies. <laughs> I um, I, I you know I like this. Like I said, I like the psychological stuff. And there is two films which have the same sort of vein about them. Uh, have you ever seen a film called The Babadook? Uh, it's a, it's Australian yeah. Babadook. Yeah, yeah. You know, now yeah, that yeah. film is 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 pretty is pretty scary, but it's got a it's scary, but it's sort of what's the word? It's it's overarching. It's, it, it, it's sort of purpose. It, it's it's about um it's about dealing with grief. And the Babadook yeah. is basically her her grief taking control of her and stuff. And when you start looking into things like that that deep, I love I love that sort of thing. So it's just like it's not actually a horror film. It's about it, it's just an an explanation on sort of how to deal no how to deal with deep grief badly. And you know at, at the end again, if you've ever watched the Babadook or you haven't watched the Babadook, spoilers. But obviously she keeps it in the cellar and feeds it now and again. And that's basically her sort of dealing with her own grief. 
and you know you know you can't get rid of it you can't get rid of grief it, it, it's just something you have to sort of deal with and sort of um yeah. and i love i love that and the second film um it's called ghost stories um and it's by oh it was a play as well what's the name of the guy he was an, he's one of the league of gentlemen he's one of the he does he writes it he doesn't he's not on the uh, show and now is it something uh, something nigh. Ah, oh, I can't remember. But he he also does Darren Brown stage shows. Um, and it's basically about a skeptic. And the whole thing is that the you know the mind sees what it wants to see. And it, even in the poster, mm. it's spelt it wrong. But because you're not expecting it, you read it properly. And um, it's basically about him being a skeptic who goes to investigate three ghost stories. And the ghost stories themselves are, you know, old school and, you know, super creepy and really just sort of quite terrifying in certain aspects. You know, it's some of that sort of harkens back to you as a child, some of the stuff you would sort of kind of, you would think of, and it really catches you. And But each one has these interlocking parts that sort of, when the end happens, and I'll not ruin the end for you, um, when you... Because the end has this really has this massive sort of curveball, and you you will either think it's the worst film ever or it's absolutely pure genius. And I was the latter. Like I thought it was pure genius. It was absolutely amazing. Like to the point where I wrote this very 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 lengthy article of you know explaining everything and what it was about and how it all tied in and all the little bits that you didn't realize sort of tied into the main arch at the very end, and. Oh man, what a good film! If you haven't seen it, you know oh, you, you, it's so good, and it's got um, Martin Freeman's in it. Uh, it's got Paul Whitehouse in it, um, and yeah, it's it's so good. It's just like, but it's just there are little parts in it, and they all sort of tie in to the main character. But you, if you weren't looking for them, you wouldn't you wouldn't realize like my my girlfriend at the time came out mm. watching it and went that was shit you know what the hell i was enjoying it until the end and i was just like i know but the end just makes it what it is because mm. if and it's more because you understand where the guy comes from and sort of his background and things and then the sort of over the whole overarching story and then just like oh man that was so so good it was scary but it made you think as well and that, that that's my mm. sort of you know something that makes me sort of think into stuff i'm just like yeah uh, yeah, I'm totally yeah. buying into that. Yeah, lovely. Do you remember, um, I, I watched something fairly recently. Um, I can't remember. It was called something, I think it had Ghost in the title, but it was a TV show like or, or a TV movie that was made uh, on the BBC or Channel 4 or something in like the 80s or 90s. I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, but basically it was it was really controversial because the people watching this thought it was real. I mean, it was set up like this. It had a... Who is that? Oh, I can't remember. What, some Yvette famous, Fielding? Uh, was it that one? Where she, she... Yeah. Uh, no, not the Yvette Fielding one. No, this is like... Um, what's his name? Who's the famous guy who did all the, the interviews? Oh, the um, oh, uh, Parkinson? Park, park, park. Yeah. Was it Parkinson? I think it was Parkinson. Or was it... Yeah, was... I think it was Parkinson. It was in this. Basically, they made it out that it was a like a like a live show, and it was about hauntings. And they were going to go to a supposedly haunted house, and there was a family there who'd been suffering these uh, like 
visitations and, and weird things happening. So it was set up to look like a genuine kind of investigation. And um, so, and then sort of halfway through, things start to go wrong. And you feel like you're watching this, you know, this is live, this is happening, this is genuine. Um, and at the time when it was broadcast, like people believed that, you know, something bad was happening, you know, and it was just incredible like, how they how they did that. Um, I think it's, it's really cool when, when you can have that kind of, you trick people into believing something is real and then their minds fill the gaps and then people can actually be so convinced it's true. So it's like the same thing that happened. Um, War of the Worlds. War of the Worlds. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very similar effect. Like those people were really freaked out by it. Um, so if you can ever get your hands on it, um, yeah, I'll, 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 I, I, I do. Let me see if I can find it. Um, um What's the I, I I vaguely remember some sort of clips about it uh, on there. We got DJ eleven thirty eight saying Blair Witch. Um, yeah, man, we we, we just talked ah. about Blair Witch. You, you got here too late. We've just talked Blair Witch. A <laughs> <laughs> uh, ghost watch is what it was called. That was it. Yeah, yeah. It was a British reality, yeah, pseudo documentary television film, um, and it was Michael Parkinson, Sarah Green. They had like a medium on and and everything. Uh, so I, I watched that thinking, oh, this isn't going to be scary at all. And uh, actually, I was like genuinely quite frightened at a couple of points. Yeah. I, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but if uh, anyone's listening or watching this right now, like do track it down and, and give it a watch. Uh, DJ says people thought uh, Blair Witch was real. Uh, I'm in the USA. Well, it, well, you know, the whole documentary style thing, um, yeah. you, you could believe you could believe that. Um, yeah. Can you can you imagine that when I I watched um, I watched Blair Witch at a very small town cinema. I, this is when I was still living up in Scotland. I, I'm from a little village, and I went with a group of friends and one of our friends' mum. And she dropped us off. We went. We saw the movie. I was suitably like terrified, absolutely out of my mind uh, with fear at that movie. And then when we left, we were driven back, and we were going down all these like really country roads with all these trees, and it was dark as well. And uh, like I remember somebody lived on a farm at the time and they had to get out of the car and like walk up this lonely lane <laughs> and there's like no lighting or anything. You know, they had like a little torch. And I was just thinking, they're about to replay the movie themselves right now. Um, I was terrified for them. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll, they I'll, were fine. I'll, I'll one-up you there. I, I went to see it in uh, with my girlfriend at the time. I would have been about 17, maybe. 17 or 18 i think at the time when it was out but i um went see in glen gormley and uh just outside belfast uh i came back i was in my mother's car and i live in a small village in the middle of nowhere called ballycarry and um it's like it's like the land that time you know forgot and it's got this old sort of like uh farm building which i think they used to use as a courthouse or something back in the day uh, and they used to they used to hang people from it, uh, and just up the road there's an old farm building where they used to say you know that's where the banshee lives you know the banshee lives there and you know when you've just come to see uh, the Blair Witch Project and my car decides my mother's car at the time decides to stop right outside that building just as I sort of you know I think that I got a flat tire I had to go and sort of get get out and I I've never. I've never changed a tire so quickly in my entire life. I was literally this old, gnarly, 
run down farm building trees all around me me freaking out trying to put a sort of a tire on <laughs> to get out of there <laughs> i would never so terrified in my entire life but, yeah. i know i think a lot of people in the countryside probably didn't watch to go and see that movie <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know that was just incredible incredible marketing wasn't it yeah. you know it was kind of all set up that these were genuine tapes that were found and they, you know they used completely unknown actors and it was really really well done um and it, there was far too many copycat movies after that but i think there were one or two exceptions which were pretty good and yeah paranormal activity was one um but i was what i was gonna say actually was um so i one of the stories in in this collection that i published is actually based on something that, that what's it called by me. the way because you, um, you keep on saying what it is but... the, the book yeah it's called fearful land fearful land um, available on amazon yeah, it's on Amazon. Um, you can get it in the US or the UK. I think it's on in most countries, uh, but it's in it's in English. Um, yeah, so one of the stories is called Wachinga, and in that story, the main character um, he ends up telling uh, his friend about this dream he had when he was a kid, and what he relates is exactly what I experienced. And there's not really any spoilers to be had, but basically. Um, I had this dream that I was walking through this cornfield and then I come to this old house or like a, like a barn type thing. And then I'm inside the house and there's like this, this baby inside a, not a baby, like more like a toddler inside like a, a cot. And it's like holding on to the, um, holding on to the, 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 the wooden flats. And it's just like screaming, absolutely screaming its face off, like red face, tears everywhere. And then next to this baby is like this, old woman and she's like sat in this rocking chair and she's just like going back and forth like this and she's cackling like cackling like mad you know she's got like no teeth she's just like laughing her head off and this kind of woke me up like I was terrified I mean it doesn't sound that bad really but at the time um I think it was only 15 or 16 when this happened and uh it, it just I, I would woke up in sweat and I was I was really scared and then I don't know what happened. I, I was lying there in my bed thinking about the dream. I was like, do you know what? I'm not, I, I can't let my dreams affect me like this. And, you know, I'm going to, if this, ha if I dream this thing again, then I'm going to change it. I'm going to make stuff happen. And anyway, I went back to sleep and weirdly enough, had the dream again. Um, and this time I, I was lucid dreaming. I actually knew what was going on. I recognized the, the, the field and everything. And um, when I got in there, I remember like, I was just like smashing up this, this barn. So I was kind of in the in the, the cornfield again, and I had this sensation that I could control things in the dream, and then it it like skipped forward, and I was in this this building, and I was just like smashing everything up. I can't remember exactly what I was smashing, but I was just like breaking things, you know, like shoot, demonstrating anger or power or whatever. And then I then I woke up. Um, but I this is the one and only time I've ever lucid dreamed in my entire life, uh, but it's always stuck with me. And I sort of used that as a basis for the for one of the stories. Because oh, I thought, well, imagine like, you know, what if you, yeah, I probably shouldn't say too much in case I give away a spoiler. But uh, one of, in this story, um, the character uh, has this, he relate, relates this to a friend of his in, the, in a bar and then something happens and then the story kind of kicks off. 
think I've, yeah. I had, um, I used to, like, I don't, my dreams wise, I generally don't sort of remember much about, but as a child, I used to have a recurring, and I think this is the only time in my life I've ever had a recurring dream, but I used to have one. My my grandfather and mom, grandmother used to live in this old um, sort of, it's a big, big, big house. Um, and they had this old staircase and I can sort of, I can visualize it now, but it was like quite dark wood. And I would always have this recurring dream of falling down these stairs. And at the top of the stairs, there was like this blue face, quite an old gnarly looking blue face sort of laughing at me as I sort of fell down these stairs. And it used to scare the shit out of me, like as a child, especially and stuff. And I was very reticent as a child to sort of go up these stairs on my own when I was a kid, um, because there was always yeah. like that 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 blue faces at the top of the stairs. Um, and it's, it's weird; uh-huh. it always sort of kind of stuck with me. And it's the only time I can sort of remember, at least, uh, of a dream recurring. Um, and it was odd. Yeah, that's that's, that's terrifying. <laughs> um, I think the the worst dream I ever had, and I was. I, I must have been so young, um, maybe nine or 10 or something like that. But it was, do you ever have, um, I, I, it happened when I had like a really high fever and it was like night terrors, except they were happening in the daytime. I've had and my terrors. mom, I to, yeah, Jesus, they're, they're terrifying. I remember speaking to my mom, um, a couple of years ago about it because my memory of it was like waking up and being in a sweat and just kind of looking in the corner of the room and screaming and for my mom and she came she told me after like when she came in that she i was saying that there was like a dark man standing in the corner of the room and uh like it just the, the thought of that like a child when you have when you got you're running a fever and you're obviously sick and like you do start having these weird hallucinations and they can just they last with you i mean i, I still remember that i still wake waking up and seeing this I don't remember seeing anything. I just remember staring into the uh, the corner of the room. Um, but like kids tend to have these night terrors, don't they, when they get sick? And uh, I think it's yeah, it's I awful. Ha- I had them. I had them like I used to have night terrors and I had them quite till quite late on. To be honest, like I don't like I sleepwalk now and again now, but I'm. I'm of the present of mind to know that when I get into that, because when you have them, you think it's real. The hallucinations are real. It's very, very real in your own mind. And obviously if I, in the odd time I I do sleepwalk, I always sort of flick my light on as a sort of a first automatic sort of safety thing is, you know, you know, lights in my mind that gets rid of, you know, darkness and stuff. So I light on and then my mind starts rationalizing that was a dream, blah, blah, blah. And then I realized, you know, that was, it was a dream. But as a kid, there was three times uh, I had night terrors that were like, my my parents were scared for me and stuff because like the, there was one, I climbed out a window. I thought something was chasing me and I climbed out a window in the rain um, to the point where my parents put restraints on all the windows in the new house my dad built because they were f- afraid that I might sort of try and climb out the window. Uh, I never I never did that again, but I just remember sort of climbing out the window. It was raining and thankfully the, way, the rain sort of woke me up slightly because I was like, why am I outside in the rain? Um, the second one was I woke up and I, it's my own fault. I was watching Pet Cemetery 2, I think, uh, when I probably shouldn't have been. And I woke up and I heard this howl 
and the howl was the the like the dog the wolf in that film and it was sitting it was sitting in the um corner of my room as real as i am talking to you now that's how it felt there and it looked at me its eyes flashed red and i shot myself and literally ran full pelt screaming my head off down the corridor and stuff and my parents were like you know everybody in the house just panicked and ran out and grabbed me and you're okay and i'm sitting there like just petrified i don't think i calmed down for like a good half an hour because i was just like that thing was going to get me and in my mind it, it was real um and the third one was when i was doing my gcse's and i was obviously stressed um like super stressed and it it was odd because you know i'd been watching ghostbusters i think and lots like ghostbusters is scary but all i remember is waking up and looking at my um looking up my chest of drawers and slime was coming out of the chest of drawers and then there was faces coming through the walls and stuff and like again it was that real that i just you know and as a teenager i was like you know what 16 you know 15 16 i i ran and jumped in my parents beds <laughs> i was that scared and i was just like they're like oh so my dad's going oh, oh my god my mom's like it's okay <laughs> i'm just like can i sleep in here tonight but yeah and like Man, yeah that's yeah. terrifying yeah but it was and it's, it's, it's as real as it is like you, you in your mind yeah and you can tell, like, with people who have sort of mental disorders and stuff and how they can believe things. But, you know, and I can understand that because when I'm in the, that, when I was, and I, again, I haven't done it in a very long time, but at the time, the, it was real. Like, I felt, you know, I if it, it, if those things had got me, they would have got me. If I, I could have touched them, you know, that was that tangible. It was that real, you know, so. Yeah. It's like that uh, sounds a bit like sleep paralysis. You know, when some people, they, they wake up or a part of their mind wakes up, and but the rest of their mind and body is asleep. So they can't move, but they feel like pressure on their chest. Mm. It's normally accompanied by hallucinations. Um, and the hallucinations are, to the person suffering it, completely real, um, like, like you're describing. And that always... Terrible. Luckily, I, you know, I haven't suffered from anything like that, but um, I can imagine it must be harrowing to go through an experience where, you know, you, not only can you not move, but you're kind of trapped in your own mind. And the things around you, what you see, are as real to you as you know, anything else you experience during your, your waking moment, except you're not awake yet. And that's, you know, that's, it's, just, it's crazy. It's mad um, though. This just shows you like the fragility of the mind, you know, and, uh, and mm. how it sort of like uh, when I even like small insignificant sleepwalking episodes when I was younger, you know, in your mind, you know, like I, like here's this is a really bad one and stuff, but it's like I was again I was a teenager, um, like eighteen. I was probably about eighteen, I think. You know, um. I'd been up playing computer games till stupid o'clock. I find like I find that if I was overtired and I had a lot of stimulus in my mind, that's when I would sort of do it. So I kind of know how to not like, not to do that anymore. But I remember sort of waking up on top of my girlfriend who was who was scared, and I was like, "What what's happened?" And, she, and I had basically thought that she had a spider 
in her mouth and I was trying to get the spider out of her mouth and oh, and she didn't know what was going on and I was freaking out and and in my mind I was like I'm trying to save you from this spider that's in your mouth and and I, I you know when I explained it to her afterwards and stuff and she knew that I slept one she was fine but it was just like it was just those things you could zero control but in my mind it's just like there's this thing in your mouth I'm trying to get it out and it was just like it's bad times <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Jesus. yeah so it's, no, you, you don't have this anymore right no it's just like um i i get the if i'm like if i'm super tired like overtired to the point where you, you you can't sleep i might sort of um get up suddenly like I'll, I'll bolt up i think that the most i've done recently is sort of bolt up um i got to the point when i was younger um it used to happen so regularly that i went to see a doctor about it and and i got tablets and all kinds i had a, a sleep diary that i had to write it all down there's things because you know stuff happened you know i was just in my mind it was all real and it didn't want to hurt anybody and stuff and i i just sort of i thought you know this was to do it but it was just a case of the medication didn't do anything the sleep diaries didn't really do anything what i found what would help me was i just didn't sort of try and overstimulate myself before i went to bed and I, you know, if I, I felt like I was being really, really tired, if I knew, I felt like, I was like, I'm super tired, something's going to happen tonight. I was like, I had this sort of like, that's why I always have a light beside my bed because I'm like, I know that's my sort of, this isn't real sort of thing. And I'll just flick it on. And as soon as that light goes on, reality starts goes kicks in and stuff you know it's just it's a very yeah. childish thing it's a very childish thing because you know, you know, like you know the, but in my mind it's like that's my get out of this world sort of you know button that i do so i'll, I'll flick the button on and yeah. then i realize and it slowly just sort of kind of goes in it doesn't you know it doesn't happen at well it hasn't happened very long time but um yeah when i was younger it, it definitely happened more regularly especially into my teenage years and stuff when i was getting stressed because of work and school and stuff like that yeah but uh yeah weird it's stuff it's interesting that you, you it, it's almost like that movie inception you know when they know they're dreaming they have that little icon or a spinning top or something that that's very personal to them and for you it's like freaking the light switch that's what gets you out yeah that's how you know you're dreaming yeah and it's just like it's it's weird and it, the thing is my house in Northern Ireland, like, it's not as bad, I think, when I'm in, so I, you live in, like, a city, or you live, like, here, where I'm on a main street, and there's lots of lights playing in, so it's always pretty light outside, so, you, you know, I could see, but my parents' house, it's in the middle of the country, there is no lights, when the lights are out, it is literally pitch dark, it is darkness, yeah. and so I always have this sort of light beside my bed in my parents' house, um, when I was younger, just in the off chance, but my mum changed the light to one of these ones where you have to put your hand up and sort of kind of, you know, those like, they've got that little black button inside and you've got to push it from left to right. And that used to wow. give me no end of problems when I, if I ever did have a sleepwalk or or, or, or an issue like that, because I'd be panicking trying to get this light and not being able to get myself out of my own sort of like dream and stuff. But it was weird because I, I yeah. knew I was trying to flick this light to the point where I nearly broke it once, but it was just like, yeah, I'm getting myself out. Wow. But yeah, so that was my yeah. sort of my inception talisman, I guess, to sort of get myself yeah. out of that. But yeah. Uh, D DJ uh, says, around eight, nine years old, I used to have dreams of knocking uh, at the front door of our house. I would go downstairs, answer the door, and there was this old man in a hood. 
with a long beard. I would run back up the stairs and then the knocking would uh, be at the door, at the top of the stairs. He would be at the door and then I'd wake up. Well, that's pretty terrifying, that is. <laughs> oh, man, that is, that is absolutely horrifying. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's great material for a story. It actually could be quite a cathartic experience to write about it. Um, you know, I often look, I think good horror writers probably do take a lot of what they write about. Like it comes from some sort of experiences they've had. Um, but who knows where everyone gets their source material. But usually it's kind of like within themselves, memories or whatever. And I think a lot of uh, a lot of writers use that to kind of exercise some demons, I guess, if that's not too cliche to say. No, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, this is great, great material for stories. Uh, and that sounds to me, that knocking on the door thing, like sounds a bit like, have, have you read um, The Monkey's Paw? Oh, man, yes, yes. Famous short story. It was that again, very, very scary because it starts off so innocuous. It's almost like a comedy. But by the end, there's that kind of banging on the door. And you don't ever find out what's on the other side. You just know, you know, because you've read the story and you, 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 you know, you've followed the plot, but you know, you never get to see it. And it's, I just remember finishing that and I was just like, oh my God, what do I do now? I need to go watch Friends or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're talking about uh, writing about it as, uh, you know, being cathartic. I actually wrote a poem. And uh, I, and I it was and it's very weird because like this this book which was going to be my like uh my my book of poetry which is a bit of a random sort of sketch book but it's also got sort of old poems like I haven't written anything in ages but once you said that I was like I'm sure I did write about it and I had I wrote a in two thousand in September of two thousand and eight I wrote a one two three four five six seven verse like small verses poem about. Uh, oh. my night terrors and it's called the corner of my eye and it's literally just about my, my about my night terrors and stuff but yeah that's funny you said that did, did it help did it help yeah well to be honest maybe it did because I from that point on I don't think I had much after that I've got I've even got some of my sleepwalking diary in here which is which is weird. It's odd that because we we talked about it and I didn't realize we were going to talk about it, and the book was beside my desk and mm. just sort of, um, yeah. So oh. it's yeah, but weird. Yeah, it, it is weird. <laughs> I do wonder, like, what were you, what were you trying to do? You know, when when these things happen, like sometimes it does make you wonder: is, is there something that's right deep in your subconscious, and you know, you're 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 acting out something that you know suppresses that's been suppressed maybe a fear or a bad memory um it could be yeah like, i mean i don't know the science behind it but yeah, it's kind I, of interesting to think about like i don't know like my brother i don't think my brother or sister or anything had sleep you know had any issues with sleep it was me and like i i don't know i don't it was because like back in the day you know my my babysitters uh you know we were great babysitters and stuff but they weren't too they weren't too bothered about what i watched and you know i remember watching hellraiser as a child and like you know that 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 sort of scene where they they're walking down the stairs on fire the person walking down yeah. the stairs on fire is like embossed in my head you know as, 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 a, as a child and stuff um but yeah it just i don't know I, I've, I've got a, a an ever so slightly sort of 
broken uh, brain at parts. I think um, I, 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 you know, with, I think with the dyslexia and you know um, other things, I sort of it's it, I've, I've taught myself how to deal with certain situations and stuff. And it was the same with the with the sleepwalking and stuff. And I think when you get your head around it, you sort of realize you know how to deal with that situation. But yeah, the mind's a, yeah. the mind's a funny thing. Yeah, it is. And I think you're probably hitting on something with the watching stuff you shouldn't be when you're you're young. I mean, I did the same. I mean, I remember, I don't even know how old I was, but seeing like the 1980s version of the movie, The Blob. And um, there are a few scenes in that which are among probably some of the goriest scenes in, in horror. There's one where like uh, a guy gets sucked down a waste disposal unit. Um, and this blob itself, like, if you've ever seen like the 50s version with Steve McQueen where it's pretty it's not very scary and it's, it's pretty tame visually but the, uh, the the remake that they did like the blob is just it's just horrible you know like it's got people inside they're kind of dissolving and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are a few scenes from that that you know they've stuck with me and they're probably like some of my earliest memories and also um, talk about Ghostbusters like Ghostbusters 2 the uh, the painting of that old kind of oh uh, uh, Vigo the Carpathian whatever Vigo the Carpathian yeah. uh, <laughs> that used to scare me as well which is kind of embarrassing to admit but that was that was pretty creepy um, even the the librarian at the beginning um, and the first the first yeah, movie, yeah, uh, yeah that used to scare me a bit as well when I was a kid. yeah, yeah it's, it does have its yeah, freak, freaky. Uh, DJ says my favorite horror movie used to be People Under the Stairs. Always made me freak out the dark basement stairs. <laughs> I don't think I've yeah, seen that's that. That's a great movie. Yeah, I don't think I've seen. I, got, that. I don't know Wes Craven. Was Wes Craven movie? Um, it's it's good actually. It's kind of horror with uh, sort of some crime elements mixed in, and like the young actor is nicknamed Fool, and uh, he's he's really cool. He's quite funny. Um, but yeah, it's got some really creepy moments as well. Uh, I used to have that on video, actually, like when I was like 12, 13 or something. I certainly shouldn't have had it on video. <laughs> I think my mom loved watching horror movies, or she went through a phase. She doesn't really watch them anymore, but we had like a pretty impressive video collection, and it was all those kind of 80s horror movies. You know, we had like The Thing and... Um, possession what else do we have like just you know the really schlocky stuff hellraiser uh, as well what was the one um, about the yogurt stuff or something was it called or it was basically about yogurt that ate you uh ate you from the inside out and i wouldn't eat yogurts for ages because of that film um <laughs> uh, and there was another one when you mentioned the thing um <laughs> i remember going to like whitehead video store when i was very young my dad said, stay in the car, I'll go and get a video. Because we went through this sort of, like, period and my dad would get a Schwarzenegger film. We'd get, like, you know, Predator or, you know, Commando. Yeah. My dad always had a... There was always a Schwarzenegger film we'd get one every every week. And um, yeah. he said, stay in the car, um, I'll, I'm going to go and get the video. But me being a, a stubborn child, but no, I'm not. I walked into the store, uh, the video store, eating, like, a fudge bar. So I'm sitting there eating this fudge bar. And it was at the exact time they were watching the thing on the screen in the video store and it was the point where the guy does the uh the the compressions on the chest and the guy's chest turns into teeth and bites his hands off and at that very moment moment in time i'm sitting there with this fudge bar in my mouth going 
Yeah, and I looked at the fudge <laughs> and I went, yeah. And I, I swear to, I swear down, man, would not eat fudge until I was 20 something. Like literally just had that, that sort of, that, that scene and that fudge bar interspersed to be this thing that I never wanted to happen again. And yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't eat fudge bars for a very long time. It was weird. <laughs> I think that's one of the worst scenes in the movie as well. Yeah, in terms of, you know, yeah. visuals. That was, that was a, a bad one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the, the book, um, it's, is it five stories? Did you say? Yeah, five stories. It's about 40,000 words in total. Um, most of the stories are eight, 9,000. So um, it's about half the, the length of a, a novel. And could you give us a quick sort of synopsis of each story without, obviously, without spoilers? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the first one is called The Watchman, and it's about a, kind of a, a lonely rifleman on a beach who's kind of watching out for these, uh, I don't want to say, but it's, it's like a threat that emerges from the sea um so there's it's quite kind of i guess it's kind of more action based but um it's definitely got horror elements to it and uh second one is wachinga which is the one i spoke about briefly is based on a dream that i had uh, when i was younger so this guy he, he has this dream he's talking about with his friend and then they um he decides to go on a journey to kind of discover the truth of this dream. Um, and yeah, I won't say anything more than that because that might spoil it. Uh, the third one is Anathema, which is kind of, I, I remember when I sat down to write that, it's changed a lot since the first draft, but I was tr- I'd finished reading, I think it was Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. And I was trying to inject some of that, his kind of beautiful, the way he writes, really about really horrific things but using really beautiful poetic language and um, my first draft was you know a bit bit of a mess but I was was kind of trying to do that and it's about um, uh, the the plot's about this guy he's an unnamed settler of a a new land and he's carrying this burden with him in a sack you don't know what it is um, and he's taking it to this place and you just kind of start learning things about why he's going on this journey and uh, you know what's in this this place he's going to it's like a forest but it has like some you know sort of mythical uh things to it as well and um it's kind of a it mixes together themes like loss and redemption vengeance uh, it's pretty pretty bloody and after anathema is daydreamer which is about a guy who has real severe sleeping problems and uh, he ends up becoming addicted to like sleeping tablets and alcohol. And he goes to, he keeps having these visions. Um, and it's the story is about him and how he learns what these visions mean and how he kind of copes and learns the truth of his, his insomnia as well. And then the final one is Sun Dogs, which is the one I wrote most recently. And uh, it's about a, group of cannibal it's like a biker gang made of cannibals who are uh trying to get this little girl so she's like surviving by herself in the woods and uh, you learn what how she's surviving sort of towards the end of the story um but she's kind of out in the woods and this cannibal biker gang 
come across her and they try and obviously capture her and eat her and stuff. But she has some sort of special skills, uh, shall we say, at fighting, fighting back. Um, yeah, and, and that's it. We're yeah. probably not given the best synopsis there, but I don't want to give away too much because um, they're only short stories. Kind of hard to, to give a synopsis without giving away yeah. some, some severe. So the the fear the point. fearful lands is called. Yeah, fearful lands. So they all kind of very much based around like different landscapes. So some are set in kind of more country settings, forests. Uh, ones like a mythical forest. Ones just like standard woods, and then you have one set in a city, um, one set in the deep south. Um, and then another set in kind of by the sea. So I think I, I wrote The Watchman, the one set beside the sea when I was living in Brighton. And that started off because I was thinking, sometimes I used to walk down Brighton Beach, especially when it was um, really bad weather. And I used to just love standing on that beach. I would go on, scarf and everything, and just look at the sea because it was just so vast and violent. You know, when it was pouring with rain, I used to, I used to love that. Um, I was the only one down there half the time, but I, it kind of inspired me to write the story about somebody who was alone, standing on the beach, and kind of trying to defend it against something that was coming out of those tumultuous waves. Um, and then the others, they've been developed now for about two or three years, but they've gone through many different drafts. I'm a member of a writing group here in Saigon as well, and um, yeah, it's, it's done the rounds here, and uh, yeah, I, I got to a point with them where I was really happy, and I think felt finished, and I thought, well, okay, I could send these out and try and get them published in some online magazine, and uh, I decided not to. I thought, you know what, let me uh, let's put them together as a collection, uh, a collection of horror, and uh, self-publish, and see if people like it and i'm currently working on a, on a novel at the moment which is kind of folk horror it's like this new kind of in vogue genre um have you ever read the ritual by adam neville no i can't say um but i i'm generally a it's either my, my reading list consists of um you know my, my reading list consists of genetically enhanced space marines um, you know, nineteenth century um riflemen or um, you know, history books, history books. So I, I tend to not yeah. sort of go for horror books and stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well that's fair enough. I mean, I think horror is a as a genre that it's not read massively widely, I don't think. Um I used to exclusively read literary stuff. I, I felt like it, you know, it was a way to it's broaden my horizons, give myself an education. So I was reading, you know, like Tolstoy and stuff like that. And over the years, I've sort of become less pretentious and started just reading stuff that I enjoy. I still read literary stuff. In fact, if when you get, and it's very rare, but when you get like a literary horror come along, it's, it's just like nothing else because you have the power of the, the, the author's words combined with the genre of horror, which, you know, together... It just their ability to terrify you is it's just unsurpassed. Um, so, but I, I now generally do read a, quite a lot of genre fiction, 
Um, and I think there's absolutely no no shame in that. I mean, you just read what you enjoy. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I try not to limit myself too much either. Well, I, I find myself, like my boss, um, as much as he'll deny it, is is, is a massive nerd. He, he'll, he says not, but he is. Um, and he's he's perpetually sort of um, asking me to uh, listen because I've got sort of um, uh, Audible uh, to listen to some audio books and stuff. So he got me listening to a guy called, um, is it Peter Klein? Uh, he does, uh, X-Heroes is basically, so it's superheroes one. So, oh, sorry, I can deal with superheroes, but it's, it's superheroes against uh, zombies. And it's got some really good story arcs in there, um, you know. And it's just like you know, you'd think superheroes are going to be overpowered, but then it's like superheroes that get turned into zombies and all this other stuff. And it's they're really good. There's five books, and um, they're I've, I I hammered them when I when I was moving stuff into my man cave and doing my house. I I I I, I obliterated them. Um, I'm currently mm-hmm. going through. It's a fantasy one, but it's called uh, the Blade itself. Um, by Abercromb Joe Abercrombie. Uh, there's three, three think, of his. I think I read one of his. Yeah, Be- Better Cold. Yes, that that's it. Yeah, that's, that's another one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think I read that one. Yeah, so I've I've got I've got loads. Uh, so you know I, I'm I'm open to most things to be honest, especially if it's an audible because my problem is I don't. I like being able to sort of do other stuff and have things on in the background so I can listen to them. Um. I feel like I can sort of get more of my reading list, my my reading list done by sort of listening to an audio. So I can walk the dog and listen to it, or you know, be doing things around sort of monotonous things around the house and sort of be able to listen to it and sort of absorb it and stuff. So that's my yeah. sort of that's my preferred yeah. method these days. Yeah, you got to find the time. It's, it can be difficult finding the time, and you're a very very busy man. Yeah, uh, with the pride stuff and job and. You know, it's incredible that you've kept Geek, Geek Pride going and it, it's grown into a phenomenon. Um, I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's, we're we're not... My problem with Geek Pride is, you know, it could be a lot further on than it, it probably should be, but it's because I have so much going on. Like, I've got a billion hobbies. You can see, you know, people will be able to see all my hobbies in the background. So I like playing games and I like sort of painting models and I like doing this, that and the other. And I like videography, I like podcasts. And I like, I've got so much stuff going on that I want to do that I don't sort of focus on one thing and therefore maybe sort of other things suffer. Um, the podcast, to be yeah. fair, haven't been going too badly because my one of the guys who write, uh, writes for us and helps with Geek Pride called, he, he works for the BBC. Well, he's he's a freelance uh, writer, but he he writes a lot for the BBC and for um, Tech Monthly or or Tech Security Monthly or something like that. Called Peter Ray Allison, and he knows all the writers, like any of them big sort of kind of write, writers and stuff. You know, we've had some really good names um, on here oh. and stuff, and you know, it's amazing just listening to them talk about you know their craft and you know. Uh, we've had all kinds of stuff. A lot of there's a lot of horror stuff, but there's a lot of sort of you know um, different sort of angles, and it's great. You know, it's just really good to hear them the talk about it. The one thing that blows my mind is their sort of vocabulary. You know, their linguistic skills. Some of the things they're saying, and you're just going, "My God!" You know, <laughs> I, I only wish I could come up with words like that in my in my conversations. You know, it's just like <laughs> it's mad, absolutely insane. That's one of I think that that's one of the best things about writing is that you can, if you're not particularly, I don't think of myself as like super articulate person. 
And I think that's one of the reasons I was drawn to writing originally because I found it kind of hard. You know, I was always quite shy at school and I think that stuck with me and I found a way to express myself through writing and over the years that's just how, where I feel most comfortable and I suppose confident in expressing myself. And, you know, I, I do, I, I've been on podcasts before like for work and you know I do all this stuff that I, I need that I think I should be doing you know you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations sometimes right yep. um, but writing is one of those places I feel like I'm kind of like my, my true self if that doesn't sound too cliche and kind of <laughs> cheesy um, but it's allowed me an avenue to you know for, for expression that I probably wouldn't have had yeah. like, if I was just speaking or, you know, doing something else that kind of relied on have you, being comfortable. You know, like public speaking is terrifying for me. Yeah, it, it is. It's especially if you don't know. Like I, I'm the same. I get to the point where if if I'm scared of something, I'll just do it because it's better to think about it. So I remember sort of we were in Greece. I know, sorry, we were in Dubrovnik, um, uh, which is amazing. If, you've ever, if you ever get the chance to go to Dubrovnik, it's an amazing city. Just like the, the history is dripping in history. It's beautiful. Uh, but there was yeah. this like sort of, we went on this kayaking trip and there's this like, um, like jump off point. And like the guy who was doing the kayaking, this is like, yeah, so you just jump off here and you jump over there. Uh, and everybody, all my friends, so he did it. He went off, jumped and went in. All my friends sort of kind of climbed up, panicked and then climbed down again and sort of you know couldn't do it or went down slow whereas i went if i go up there and i think about it i'm gonna freak myself out so i need to just do it and it's like my thing in life now where it's like with these podcasts or with you know lots of things that might panic me i'm just like if i think about it i'm going to do my own head in so i just need to do it and get it over and done with um so every it's every yeah. time i do a podcast like every time beforehand i'm like oh no uh, i might get words wrong my you know my dyslexic brain will say something i don't mean to say or i'll, n- I'll not be able to get the words out and you know and i just go just press play just do it get it over and done with and stuff and it's just like you know once you sort of face that fear you know it's a lot it's a lot easier it's a lot better but um yeah i i understand yeah we're our own work critics Sorry. Yeah, agreed. And I think once you once you accept that, when as soon as you accept that, it's like, well, no one's gonna think I'm 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 the only person that's gonna think it's terrible, really. You know, no one else is. Yeah, like people they, they everyone's so focused on their own stuff as well. I'm like got their own things going on in their heads, and I think we we put too much um, emphasis on what other people think, but actually, you know, what they're thinking is they're thinking about something completely different, or you know. Weird how that that will work. Yeah. Um. Have you ever heard of the No Sleep podcast? By the way. No sleep. No sleep. It's a horror. Bell, yeah. It's a horror podcast, and we've had a couple of uh, a couple of their sort of uh, voice actors um, on the podcast. Um, and it, it, you know, I've I've got some uh, on my backlog of things I need to listen to and stuff, but. Um, it, it, it's by all means from what I've been told from some of the other Geek Pride guys 
you know amazing um and you know listening to them like uh talk about their craft and you know what they do and put even putting on voices and things like that but it's like a horror podcast and they have like it's an acted out horror cog so they have a story and they have different voice actors who, who voice it and stuff so um I oh, bet cool. be worth giving it a go it's called no sleep yeah no sleep podcast yeah, yeah. Worth it. yeah. right Thank you. Yeah. Um uh I think well, obviously we're we're we'll, we'll let you we'll let you go. I think your I think your wife uh, wants to watch TV without you you, you blathering on it and <laughs> Yeah, I think she's watching it with her headphones on yeah. with uh, eating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't... no. Thanks thanks again man for for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um yeah, it's been great to to talk to you. Yeah. Um you know, we've we've known each other for a very long time and this is the first time we've actually had a proper kind of chat and it'd be great to talk about the book as well and i hope uh, everyone listening is, has enjoyed it too yeah um uh, well dj says i enjoy love uh and do viewing sorry i enjoy viewing streams like this but i also really wa- uh like watching star talk with neil degrasse tyson science fiction and physics etc well that's what you get that's mm. what you get with the geek pride cast a bit of everything we we have got <laughs> yeah we, we just segue into random things we we've you know that's it <laughs> and by the way if you if you ever want to jump on um just i appreciate there's a massive time difference so it's probably unlikely but if we ever do any uh and you fancy it uh you're more than welcome we just talk about random stuff um i to be honest i kind of want to do one um where we have a lot of the writers that we've had on before and have them talk to each other just to see sort of like creative processes and things like that um so i think that'll be quite an interesting one so you're more than welcome to join that yeah. when we get that on the yeah no, that would be amazing yeah just let me know um so yeah uh thanks very much man uh it's been an absolute pleasure and uh it's good to finally talk to you in 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 person uh we probably could have done this a very long time ago but uh you know life <laughs> you know being life, I don't know, life, life gets in the way life gets in the way um but it's been a pleasure uh your book so um likewise there are books available uh, on Amazon at this moment in time, worldwide. Uh, it's called um, oh, Fearful Lands. The Fearful Lands. Um, I will. I will. I promise you I'll get it read. Uh, it's just sort of currently my, my, my priority list is sort of kind of like this, and but I will get it done. I promise you, sir. I'll, I'll, I'll get it read. Um, but yes, Amazon, Fearful Lands, uh, it's available now. Uh, it's not even, it's a couple of quid. It's like three quid or something, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's like £2.11. I said it like a US um, at $2.99, so yeah. whatever that is. Yeah, what like pounds uh so yeah give give it uh give it a go um it's um you know it'll help it'll help out chris it'll be a favor to me and um yeah i'm I'm sure it will be an amazing read and i will read it sir i promise you um so thanks very much um dj thanks for all the comments mate much appreciated um thanks chris thanks to your wife for being so patient with us um it's it's much appreciated (laughs) (laughs) and hopefully we'll we'll talk soon yeah it'll be great man thanks again all right peace out everybody good night (laughs) 